Well, good morning, and uh, thank you all for inviting me into your homes and for the opportunity to tell you about God's rescue plan, which you should see there on the screen. Uh, it's no accident, I think, that this sermon was entitled God's Rescue Plan long before schools were canceled and we all found ourselves quarantined due to this COVID-19. Um, so for this sermon, for this time together, I invite you, um, I want to I help answer three questions that may or may not be on your mind. Uh, this morning. First of all, who are Chris and Emily Burkhart and how has God rescued them? Uh, or, or other words, you know, what's, what's our testimony? Uh, the second question is, how has God used camp specifically in his grand rescue plan? That is, why camp? Uh, and the third question for this morning, what do we learn about God's rescue plan uh, from the passage of scripture, which we're going to be uh, focused on, as you can see down there in the lower left, uh, John 14, uh, verses 1 through 7. So uh, let's start off by reading that passage. It says, Do not let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house there are many dwelling places. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go there to prepare a place for you? And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, so that where I am, there you may be also. And you know the way to the place where I am going. And Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you know me, you will know my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. So who, who am I? Who is my wife? What's our testimony? How has God rescued us. So, so for my testimony, I was born and raised in Greenwood, Indiana, just south of Indianapolis. Just my parents, my older brother, and myself. My dad, and this will come into play later, but my dad is the oldest of seven boys, and he grew up in a Catholic household. Uh, in fact, my father actually ended up in Catholic seminary, and lucky enough for my, me and my brother and, and my mom, that, that didn't work out. He actually studied to be a priest. Uh, now, growing up, we attended Southport United Methodist Church, and I'm, a, I'm an older millennial, uh, and I think we were the last generation of people that you took your kids to church because that's what you were supposed to do. And while we, while we liked the people, we liked the programs of the church, we liked the music of our church, we as a family did not have a lot of love for the person of Jesus. And by that, I mean, we spent most of our Sunday afternoons in the car or at lunch discussing why we believe the pastor to be wrong um, and how narrow-minded and exclusive and backward and dangerous religious people, especially those Jesus-only Christians, can be. Needless to say, the idea of ever attending a church camp never really crossed my mind uh, and definitely something that was not encouraged by my parents. But as many of you know, those of you who follow Jesus that are, are listening and watching today, you know that God works his grace often into our lives when we're not looking for it. And that was the case for me. Uh, when I was in eighth grade, I found myself in, in quite a bit of trouble. And we won't get into the details here. Uh, I'm happy to share with you at a later time. But suffice to say, I was looking for a way to get out of Dodge. I wanted to get out, uh, to get away from all of the drama. And that was when Right in the middle of that time is when we received a new associate pastor at Southport United Methodist Church, and she just happened to be the director of the high school week of a camp called Camp Indicoso. Now, 
the United Methodist Church uh, actually owns and has seven campsites uh, across the state of Indiana. Uh, my wife works as the registrar for all of those campsites. So if you have any questions about attending camp uh, inside of the United Methodist system, um, she is the person to, to ask. But for me and my testimony, this, this person, her name was Laura, she pushed and pushed and pushed for me to go. And I never really considered it again until I was in in trouble but with the promise it's just a little shame to admit but with the promise of getting to meet girls i agreed very reluctantly to go and that decision to go to camp that year was the catalyst of a decision that would change the rest of my life and it was at that place where i heard a message from a man named tom about how god knew me and how god loved me and how he, he knew me so well, he knew every hair on my head. And there was just something about that message and something about that place. I had an experience where I could feel that love from God for the very first time. And, and in that moment, I gave my life to Jesus forever. And from there, God would continue to work his grace in my life. The very next year, at that very same camp, I met my now wife, Emily. That's right. Met God the first year when I intended to meet girls. Met Emily the next year when I intended to go back and soak in more of what it means to have a deeper relationship with God. We began to date when I was a junior in high school. We were married uh, after I graduated college. Uh, after that, we went to Asbury Theological Seminary where I attended with every intention of becoming a United Methodist pastor. However, we were led in a different direction and I now find, my, find myself in a full-time secular job. Uh, I sell payroll software, if anybody who's interested. Uh, we have two children. We have a biological son named Will, who's six, and we have a foster daughter named Ezra, uh, who's a year and five months. Uh, and we've had her just over, just over a year. And while I preach about four or five times a year, and I lead our adult Sunday school class at Center United Methodist Church, where we currently attend, um, each year I most look forward to returning now as the director to that same camp where my life in Christ truly began. So enough about me, on to question two. Why camp? What, what role does camp play in God's grand rescue plan uh, for, for the world and for all of us? Why with all of the ministry opportunities in front of me, in front of all of us who follow the way of Jesus, why do I choose to devote so much of my heart and life to the camping ministries of the United Methodist Church? Well, I think the first and most honest answer is, is, is that camp means a lot to me personally. I just shared with you in my testimony how central it was. It was at camp that God's relentless pursuit of my life finally broke through. Now, let me be clear. Let me be very clear. I do not believe for a second, for one second, that God was not pursuing me before camp. I believe that God, in the name of Jesus, by the power of the Holy Spirit, was in, is in relentless pursuit of each individual on this planet. And that is because we are his children who have wandered too far from his house. And God will use every means necessary to bring us back home. But this is a pursuit first based in love, not coercion, meaning God's not just going to walk in, knock us over the head caveman style and drag us back to, to his home. No, we must decide for ourselves that living in his house is better than living in whatever house uh, we're building for ourselves or that's been built for us by our parents or our political parties or our country or our schools or our church or our culture. Would God have brought me into his house without camp? 
Maybe, maybe. Never, ever, ever limit the power of the Holy Spirit. I don't think his pursuit was any less or more intense at camp than it was at any other moment of my life. But here's what I can tell you. I was more open to God's pursuit at camp than I was at home. I was more open to his call in my life at camp than I was at other points in my life. It was a context where I could hear his voice more clearly. It's a call from God on my heart and on the heart of my wife, Emily, to continue to be, to the best of our ability, Christ's laborers to whomever he happens to bring to our camp. It is our privilege to model that non-coercive, God-like love to the kids, to our fellow counselors, and to the staff uh, at Indicoso. That is to say, we spend a lot of time and energy ensuring that we don't simply create emotional highs in order to force major life decisions for the kids. Instead, we simply treat the kids and counselors and staff with the utmost of Christ-like love, honesty, and respect. It is our pleasure to provide an environment where the walls that we naturally build between ourselves and God are a little bit weakened. Celtic Christians often spoke of thin places, meaning that, the, that, there, that there are places on our planet where the distance between heaven and earth seems a lot shorter than it usually seems. It is Emily and I's privilege to serve Christ in such a place. And we would be happy to tell you more and to speak with you in greater detail, not only about our camp, but with the many others that are provided throughout our state, both the United Methodist system and, and elsewhere. But on to question three. What does this passage that we looked at uh, just a, a few moments ago, what is this passage in John teaching us about God's grand rescue plan? God's rescue plan is actually the theme of camp, of our camp for this year. Why is that, you ask? What if I told you? What if I told you that the controlling metaphor of scripture is that of a father, the head of his household, paying any price necessary to bring a lost family member back into the fold where they belong? What if I told you that we could draw a single arc through the entire, Bi through the entire Bible that spoke of that father doing whatever he could to get his children back to the land that he had created for them in Eden? What if I told you that your worth as a human being is not determined by what you do or how you act or how you think or how you vote or who you hang out with or anything like that? What if I told you that your worth as a human being is, de is determined by one thing and one thing alone, and that is by the quality of the father in pursuit to bring you home? If the holy God, the creator of all things, is after your heart and working this hard to bring you home, then you are already somebody of special, unique value. But I'm getting a little ahead of myself. In fact, it wasn't until I went to seminary that I learned what this passage would have meant to the disciples who were hearing Jesus speak these words. Uh, so I want to share with you what I what I've learned, and then we'll come back and we'll take a look at this. Uh, we'll take a look at this passage one more time. So this this first thing that I want to show you, I'm going to scooch myself out of the way here a little bit. The first thing I want to show you are these concentric circles that you see on the screen. This is Israelite society. This is uh, uh, just a visual representation of how they ordered their world. And the very center is the Bet-Ab, the house of the father. That's what Bet-Ab means. It's, it's Hebrew. It means house of the father. And so 
they lived, we live today in a bureaucratic society, right? Um, these guys lived in a family-centered society. See, you see, Israelites, like Jesus and his disciples, lived in a patriarchal society. That means everything was about the oldest living male. Women, this means that in the time of Jesus, and we don't, we don't have to emulate this, thankfully, but in the time of Jesus, um, first you were your, the daughter of your father, then you were the wife of your husband, then you were the mother of your son, and your entire identity is found only in the men that surround you. So let me give you, for instance, to put this in, in context. Let's say I found myself in trouble in this society. Let's say I was caught on my camel outside the Sea of Galilee doing 85 miles per hour. That is one fast camel. Someone would tell my dad, who if you remember from my testimony earlier is the oldest of seven, my grandfather's deceased, and my dad uh, would be the one to dole out the punishment. He had the authority of life and death, right? Now, what if my dad wasn't around? Does the authority then move to the next oldest brother, right? My, my father's brother? No. Uh, in fact, it would move to my older brother. The decision would move to the oldest living male heir of my dad. If my dad's not around, then my brother is my dad. Does that make sense? I want to make sure you get this because it's critical to understanding what Jesus is saying and how the di disciples would have understood what uh, Jesus was saying in John 14. All right. So uh, that, that being said, let's, let's move on. The other thing, uh, another thing to understand is that their households didn't look like ours, right? So for instance, my house is my wife and my two children in a two-bedroom house, right? Uh, no extended family currently live with us. However, the Israelites didn't have individual family homes like we do. They lived in little family compounds, and that's what you see, uh, see on the screen right now. Um, multiple households, right, uh, shared the duties of the farm and the shared living space as well. Had we lived in the Bible times, uh, my, Emily and I and our children would live with my older brother, his wife, their children in my father's house. We also probably would have lived with some of dad's brothers and their family, so my cousins and their kids, right? Um, and my dad has, uh, my dad has, like I said, six brothers. So we probably, our family compound wouldn't have had two buildings like you see on the screen here. Uh, our family compound might've had four or five and we would all be sharing together. Uh, but remember, we're living there with all of that, all, all of their wives, their children, my cousins, and so on. All right. Lastly, uh, also understand that they're living, uh, most of these uh, are, are agrarian, they're, they're, they're small family farms, uh, they, these are not very wealthy people, they're not a wealthy nation, um, it was very cramped living space most of the time. In fact, the most precious livestock lived on the ground floor while everybody else slept up in the main area, and this was because it got fairly chilly at night, and the warm heat of the animals would rise up to the person sleeping above, and it was a lot less stinky up there than it was uh, down on the first floor with the animals, but let's pause here for a moment. I, you can see on your screen it says Luke 2-7, the Greek kataluma means guest room, not in. So when you're, when you're, when, when we come around to Christmas time again, remember that, um, it probably wasn't 
that uh, Joseph and uh, Mary found themselves outside of a, of a Holiday Inn and the Holiday Inn didn't have enough rooms, right? It was probably, since they were traveling for a census, it was probably they, they came upon a family compound of, uh, of, of a family that was distantly related to them. And uh, they said, listen, the upstairs area where everybody sleeps is full. There's no, there's no room left, right? There's basically the guest room, the room where everybody sleeps is full up, but you are more than welcome to stay where the animals are, right? Um, and, and so most scholars believe that, uh, this, that this is the story of Jesus's birth. Um, so as we reread this passage this morning, let's remember that this is a patriarchal society who live mostly, so let me, let me go back here. This is a patriarchal society very much centered, the, the, the authority of life and death is all about the oldest living male relative. And if they're not around, then it's all about their heir, right? The next oldest living male relative, right? Uh, they also lived in family compounds, right? Um, and and that, the, that, in, that the family dwellings inside of those compounds was a shared uh, crowded space. So now let's rehear these words and hopefully now maybe be able to see how the disciples may have heard these words when Jesus spoke it to them so long ago. Jesus says, do not let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my father's house. So again, you know now that when Jesus says father's house, he's not just talking about um, an individual dwelling place. He's, he's, he's talking about He's saying in God's family, in God's family compound, there are many dwelling places. And this is the new, inter this is the new Revised Standard Version. They've got this right. There are some translations out there that might say mansions. I don't believe that's a correct translations, uh, translation. Uh, there's some out there that say room or rooms. That's okay. It's not great, but it's okay. Dwelling places is, is, is the best one. And Jesus says, if it, there are many dwelling places, if it were not so, I would have told you, or I should say, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And you know the way to the place where I am going, right? And Jesus uh, probably thought he was being very, very clear. And what Jesus is declaring here is that he is the son of God. But then Thomas asks the question. Thomas asks, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? And Jesus said to him, I am the way, I am the truth and the life. No one comes to the father except through me. If you know me, you will know my father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. So again, remember what Jesus is saying to his disciples is essentially this, I am returning to my father's household to prepare a place for you. Again, that metaphor of scripture is God has sent his one and only beloved son to gather the other sons and daughters, the other members of his household back and to collect them back, to pay whatever price necessary to bring them back into his household. And trust me, a dusty three by five foot space in God the Father's house is better than any mansion that we could create for ourselves. Again, Thomas asked the questions, and I, I, the question 
how, how, how will we get there? How do we know where you're going? How, how, we don't know the place where you're going. And I'm sure the other disciples were grateful. Remember, these men were not deep theologians. They weren't scholars. They weren't deep finger, thinkers. They've been following Jesus and just doing the best they can, which is what any of us could do. And Thomas was confused. And I would put real money down that he wasn't the only one. They still didn't understand what Jesus was saying. So Jesus lays it out in clear language that Jesus understand, that, that they can understand, excuse me, that they can understand. Thomas asks, how can we know the way? Jesus says, I am the way. More than that, he says, I'm the truth. More than that, he says, I'm the light. Thomas may have been looking for some sort of Google map directions to a specific physical place, but Jesus says, no, it's me. It's me. If you know me, you will know my father also. If you know me, you are living in the father's house right now. The entire arc of the story of the Bible is found right here. From the beginning, God created a perfect, let's take a look at God's rescue plan in the scope of the whole Bible. Let's, let's, I'm going to take these next couple of moments to, to try to bring it all in into one cohesive thing for you. From the beginning, God created a perfect and ordered world. He created human beings to be his image bearers for that world. That whenever creation would see a human being, they are to see the image, the very image of God. But God gave us a choice. We can live in his authority and under his lordship, or we can go our own way. And guess what? We still as human beings every day choose to go our own way. But God enacts a rescue plan. First, he saves one man, a man named Noah, from a flood that was the unmaking of what God had originally created. Then God saves one family, the descendants of a man named Abraham. And those descendants become one nation. And through that nation, that nation actually gets, the descendants of Abraham end up in Egypt, they're enslaved, and God calls a man named Moses to pull them out, and, and, and Moses makes them a nation, or uh, through God, uh, God, God through Moses makes them a nation. And during the time of this nation came a king named David, not a perfect king, but one after God's own heart, and God made a promise to that king that someone from his line, from the line of David, would be there to rule. And our New Testament there, someone from the line of David will rule forever. And our New Testaments make it clear that from that line came Jesus. Have you ever wondered why the New Testament authors spent so much time in those genealogies connecting the line of David to Jesus? That's why, because they're connecting it to this promise of this grand rescue plan that, that, that God enacts from the very, very beginning. And more than that, here in John 14, Jesus declares that he is God's firstborn, that belonging to him and knowing him are enough, enough to have a place in God's family compound. Adopted, redeemed, and rescued sons and daughters of our most high creator God, know now your worth and worthiness. An entire rescue plan created by God, confirmed in Christ, and continued in the person of the Holy Spirit has been enacted for you, for you. To know Christ is to have a place right now in God's household. This is the message of Scripture. And this is the message we'll be studying at the high school week of Camp Indicoso this year. I want to thank you all again for allowing me to spend some time in your homes 
and, and for speaking about John 14, one through seven. Um, if you have any further questions about camp, uh, feel free to contact uh, Pastor Joe. I'm sure he can get you in touch with us. Also, if you wanna just call my cell phone, if you have questions or you wanna talk further, uh, my number is 317-691-0672. I'd be happy to speak with you. Uh, and if you have questions about camp, please, uh, we'd, love to, we'd love to talk to you more. Um, but to wrap up our time, let's, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for this time that we got to spend together. Thank you for the ability to continue to speak uh, with one another and build one another up. Thank you for these words that Jesus gave to his disciples so long ago. Thank you for the ability for us to read them now and, and, and to see them perhaps closer in the light as the disciples would have, would have seen them. Uh, Heavenly Father, help us to live in your house. Help us to destroy any house we've created for ourselves and instead to live today in your house. Help us to know deep in our bones what it means that you have enacted a rescue plan for me, for them, for all of us who are listening to this, God. You have enacted a rescue plan and you have sent your firstborn male heir out to bring back into your household those who have wandered too far. God, may your Holy Spirit empower all of us to find ourselves living in that house today, tomorrow, and for the rest of our lives. And it's in your son's name that we pray all of these things. Amen. God bless you all. Thank you again.